Love Talk Radio. Come back home to Africa. Come back home. 
within our best interest forward, to move God forward. For indeed, when we're resonating in the appropriate frequency, we indeed resonate with ourselves, but we also co-resonate with the divine creator. And it gives us greater energy, greater access to that, which allows us to create and recreate our reality. And many of you have heard me say that there is no voodoo without nature. There is no ifa, there is no akhan, there is no sensoria, or mukumi, or palo without nature. No Maria Leonza, no 21 Division, no Haitian voodoo. That is after the nature. Nature. And so spirit is not just this sort of smoky, ethereal, misty form that we co-create within, which indeed that is a relative reality. But it's also very real, very physical, very tangible spirit that we operate in, that exists in nature. Some call it anim- animistic, the idea that we understand that all things possess spirit, but particularly nature, particularly your plant, your earth, your wood, the ground, the, the very soil in which life is born and reborn in, our, our marshy, swampy areas, our moist areas on the planet that create and recreate not just fruit and produce and vegetables and foliage, but indeed infirmities and disease and viruses and things that we traditionally wouldn't make contact with, traditionally. Nature has its way of handling its own. Nature has its way of handling itself. And so our jungles and our dense areas have housed, some would say for thousands of years, viruses and, 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 and contaminants that we normally in humanity would not have connection to. But as we continue to destroy nature and cut down the trees and uh, uh, herbicide our yards and, and eliminate what's healthy, what's fruitful, what's edible, what's medicine, and begin to rely more and more on just science and technology, which has to include marketing, commerce, capitalism, some of those words don't ring positive with my spirit. Some of those words don't ring positive with your spirit. While other words might be a necessity to our very survival. So it's hard sometimes. Me and my mom had this discussion over the weekend. It's hard sometimes for me to separate spirit and spirituality and religion from politics, in particular voodoo with four O's, particularly voodoo, with a U, particularly, because it was in this environment of politics, of forced servitude, enslavement, of wicked leaders and and wicked rulers and, and capitalists who would otherwise disregard your humanity, disregard your very life for their own benefit for their own self 
endowment. So sometimes it's very hard. Greetings, Matthew Ferguson. Divine all blessings. Peace and blessings. Sometimes it's hard to separate politics from spirit. In, in our daily lives, our daily lives are fumigated with, with so much pollution. Even amongst the, the wonders of technology, so much pollution. We can use our internet to search information and research and history and study. But then at the same time, we get a great degree of pollution, negativity and, and jealousy and, and, and harm and violence and, and wickedness that exists in the world. It's easy to unplug the TV. It's easy sometimes to, to tune out. But at some point, you have to be in touch with the very world that we have to wake up in every day, that our children have to wake up in every day. So it's hard to ignore the shenanigans of the White House. It's hard to ignore the shenanigans of that Cheeto that y'all call a president. It's very hard to ignore the, the many depths of messages and, and code words and, and signaling that spews out, not just from what he says, but even now from what he does. And so we don't believe a lot of what's being presented to us. We can. And and in many cases, we are being presented much if you've been paying attention to what his his medical team has, has been presented to us. So it is indeed in these times that I fall back on ancestors. People say, well, what do you do? How do you deal with it? How do you process it? Along with everyday life. First, I fall back on my ancestors. First, I fall back to my ancestors. That, that is indeed your front line of defense. I don't care who you are, where you are, what your scenario is, what your income is, what, what your particular you know position in the crossroads of life is. We all have ancestors. We all have those who survived and then ultimately went on to the next level of existence, but but survive in, in this what we call humanity, in this world. And particularly our ancestors that made the middle passage that have survived continuous attempts to stop us, lock us, eliminate us, prevent us, denigrate us, dehumanize us, and still arise. Thank you, my Angelo. And still we rise, and still we get up every day. And as one of my godmothers, may she rest in our womb, Mama Yeye, used to say, baby, y'all just getting by on your ancestors. Y'all just getting by on your ancestors. Iba e shango. Iba e oya. Ose shango. But we just getting by on our ancestors in most cases. And when we consider the blocks, the issues, the complications, often our ancestors are present in that. They're present in that to move us away from, to deter us from, to distract us from, to draw our attention to that which is in our best interest. And particularly when we can't hear, particularly when we can't see, particularly when we don't understand. 
if heaven forbid we be in denial or just arrogantly and woefully ignorant, heaven forbid, but it is indeed the ancestor. I used to hear a saying once upon a time, uh, God protects babies and fools. Uh, did your mama used to say that? Did your grandmama used to say that God protects babies and fools? You know, so so there's a degree in there, in the middle, where we're obligated to be co-creators. It's more than just our immediate needs. So our immediate needs are important. Um, our immediate needs are, are necessary to our survival and to our overall sense of wellness and well-being and, and energy and motivation, indeed. But then when do we grow up? When do we step into? And, and now, more than ever, now more than ever, I, I was in the spirit realm last night, and I kept being led back to 1962. 1962, the Cuban missile crisis, and spirit kept saying, never more have we been in danger than we are right now. The most recent past And the spirit kept leading me back to 1962. If I had, you know, I had to do some research, and that was the year of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I know that predates many of you in this audience. But it was the closest time that we've been to real nuclear war, to really having the communists and Americans Locked some kind of toxic, you know, nightmare into the world with, with the threat of us all being eliminated. And so the time that we exist in right now is more grave than ever before, ever before. And, and so I ask, why can't we see? Why can't we hear? Why don't we understand? Witchcraft. <laughs> Witchcraft. What explains the madness that we're seeing right now beyond witchcraft, beyond alien intervention, beyond something demonic? And and what clouds the vision and clouds the ears of those around him that would subject themselves to potentially death? COVID-19 ain't no joke, people. Do we still need a lesson in COVID-19? COVID-19 is no joke. And so if our president, if the Cheeto in the White House, you know, says one thing and does another, you know, it really puts into dispute what, what's true and what's truthful. And where does truth and truthfulness get you? in the world of 2021, 2020 and 2021, going into 2021, because this year is about over, y'all. <laughs> this year is about done. We need to now be focusing on the next, the next thing. So I'm going to get off my political soapbox. Please, just vote. 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 Inspire others to vote. Motivate others to vote. 
assist your mama, your grandmama, your uncle, your aunt, your cousin, your brother, sister, assist them in the process. If you can prevent people from having to, you know, go out in public transportation or be exposed to the COVID, do your role. Play your role. But we can't just be inactive. We can't say we all get it, we all understand we're operating in consciousness and then not have that show up in demonstration, have that show up in our behavior. There's a moment in, in time where we must do something, and that moment is right now. The threat is women's rights. The threat is civil rights. The threat is human rights. There are many threats attached to not doing anything right now. And so I just ask you to do something, participate, be active. If you can't get up off the couch, if you can't leave your house, if you can't leave your neighborhood, you know, Utilize your internet, utilize your social media, use your Twitter, use your Facebook, your, your Instagram. Um, I'm seeing people well into their 70s and their 80s that are really active right now uh, in social media like never before, just under the threat of what may happen after this, this uh, presidential election. And even at my age, I can't remember another presidential election that was this fiery. You know, I remember all the drama around Reagan <laughs> and, and the 666. Reagan's first name, middle name, last name had six letters in it. He was the mark of the beast. And, you know, people were really, really worked up. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that number fell in the, for the three-digit the three, three lotto number in Washington, D.C. <laughs> okay during that time period, and so it was a big deal. It was a big deal. But now, it, it makes Reagan, it makes Bush, it makes Obama, it, it, it makes Carter, it makes many, many who come before him pale in comparison, weak in comparison to the, the danger that we might be in right now if, if this man is continuing to, to leave is continue to do uh, what he's doing. So I'm going to move on. I'm going to invite you to be a part of the conversation today. We're going to talk a little bit about plants and herbs, uh, what the Yoruba call airway, uh, where the spirit of voodoo exists in the plant. And I want to draw from African-American plague medicine from the 19th there were many different factors that led to the effectiveness of African-American slave medicine during the early, mid-19th century United States, or what we now come to understand as the antebellum period. African slaves who were taken away from their native lands carried with them their own native medical practices and knowledge. Their pre-established medical knowledge would grow over time as countless generations of African Americans would soon be exposed to the medical cultures of both the Native Americans and the white European immigrants. The function slave practice medicine would play in the society during this time period would also be shaped by the new complex 
social conditions of slavery. The value each slave owner, as well as community, placed on slave practice medicine was different from one plantation to the next. This provided a number of different environments where medicine practice by the enslaved was both nurtured and suppressed compared to the kind of westernized medicine that was being conducted by white medical practitioners at this time, especially in the South. Slave practice medicine was in some ways advanced for its time, considering that most all slaves in the United States could not read or write during this time. Slaves who did practice medicine were largely unaware of the actual science behind what they were doing. This reason alone is most likely responsible for why medicine practiced by African-American slaves was looked down upon by many white owners and doctors of the antebellum period. However, with the luxury of today's knowledge of modern chemical science, we are able to see just how advanced some of these herbal cures really were in both their biological complexity and their ability to cure specific ailments. The widespread uses of medical herbs and holistic, natural, plant-based remedies by the enslaved of the early to mid-19th century were equally as effective in treating ailments of the body when compared to commonly practiced white medicine of the same time era. And in some cases, medicine practiced by slaves was more effective in treating the physical and psychological conditions of the patient than the medicine practiced by their white counterparts. This shows that African-American enslaved provided a significant contribution to the medical community of the United States. There were a plethora of different herbs, roots, bark, spices, and other naturally occurring biological components used in slave medicine. Their uses as well as prevalence were contingent on their availability and usefulness. Some of these cures worked well, Some offered little more than coincidental cures, and others were even a bane to a person's health. However, each of these these cures, effective or not, built upon the already pre-established knowledge that slaves had medicine. Their experimentation with various kinds of plant-based remedies is what led them to make these great albeit unknown breakthroughs in medicine that we still really use today. Um, One particular herbal cure used by African-American slaves was a plant called asphatidia. Asphatidia. Asphatidia is a perennial closely related to silphium of thyroid and has characteristics of plants in the fennel family. It is native to India and Iran, but was most likely brought over to the New World by European settlers. As its name implies, asafoetida has a fatigued odor to it. Asafoetida is spelled A-S-A-S-E-T 
I be like David, A. Ask for Tito. For fatigue, F-E-T-I-D, odor to it. It is commonly referred to as stinking gum or devil's dung. Asafoetida is popular in Indian cooking, and it has a similar taste to leaf. The dried sap of the plant extracted from the stem and the root forms a resin-like gum. Commercial usage of the plant makes this resin with rice flour and gum arabic. Victoria Adams of Columbia, South Carolina, recalls using the plant as a preventative measure against diseases on her plantation. She said they would dip asphetida in turpentine and hung it round our neck to keep off disease. Asphetida was used as a preventative against a number of pulmonary diseases, such as whooping cough, bronchitis, smallpox, and emphysema. It was usually placed in a bag around someone's neck so that they could breathe in the fume. Asphetida is found to have worked as an anti-flatulant by reducing the amount of indigestion by reducing the amount of indigenous microflora in the gut. Because of its close relation with the famed silphium of thyrene belonging to the same family as Florula, it had also been reported to contain naturally occurring organic contraceptive counterparts. However, its most notable traits are its antimicrobial or antibiotic, antibiotic element, and its ability to fight off influenza as well as other forms of viral flu. We ingested asafoetida, worked it in the gut to limit bacteria growth. But when worn around the neck, the pungent fumes can open congested airways, kill harmful bacteria in the nasal passages. The U.S. Pharmacopoeia approved of the herb to fight of the spread of Spanish influenza in 1918. In 2009, it was later found out that the roots of the plant produced a natural antiviral drug compound that was effective in fighting strains of flu, like the H1N1 virus in Virtro. This may have been an important factor concerning its effectiveness against Spanish influenza. Modern medicine at the time did not have anything of this potency that was able to combat many of the pulmonary diseases suffered by both white and African Americans. The use of turpentine on these resins most likely acted to acted similar to Dick's vapor rub in its ability to open up nasal passageways. Turpentine also acts well as an antiseptic due to its nature as an organic solvent. Turpentine is a sap harvest from a number of different pines in the United States and is primarily made up of organic molecules such as pinene, P-I-N-E-N-E-S. However, turpentine is also extremely flammable 
And because of its nature as an organic solvent, it's often harmful to breathe directly into the lungs. When turpentine is applied to the skin, it also irritates the applied spikes and can cause bad rashes. Other forms of medicine employ the use of boiled water to dissolve polar organic materials in teas for oral consumption. And some of you might remember uh, a little while back I shared a bit of a recipe that I learned from my mother, um, particularly during cold and, and flu season. And um, I'm not sure if she gained the knowledge from her mother, uh, but the use of pine, pine cones, and particularly the, the brown, hard, woody pine cones, not the green pine cones. That could kill you. <laughs> but the hard, the hard, hard, woody pine cones that you find, particularly up north, uh, clean them really well, really well. Wash them, and the boiled compounds that that I just shared with you are what's produced when you boil that pine cone. And that tea is drinkable. You can add honey to it. Another natural, organic antibiotic. You can add garlic to it, um, onion to it. And um, and believe it or not, it doesn't taste quite as bad as it might sound like it would. <laughs> Particularly if you, you know, add a little honey to it, uh, you know, to give it a little extra flavor. But it's very powerful for opening up the passageways, the airways. Um, and, and, and I don't want to confuse this as some kind of reference to what we're dealing with right now. So I'm just sharing for history. I'm not suggesting that this has anything to do um, and, and I don't want to say it because if I say it out loud, um, the show gets flagged. But you all know what we what we dealing with right now. Uh, between February and yeah, right. So I'm not speaking to that, but, but I'm speaking to ways in which even before we had access to the healthcare system, even before we had access to some Obamacare, even before we had access to um, any sort of professional medical intervention, we indeed had to heal ourselves, had to rely on the knowledge, the wisdom, the understanding that we had and possessed and managed to hold on to even through the middle passage, even through attempts to eliminate and eradicate uh, any memory of our own knowledge. And so it's very powerful to have that awareness going into 2021 um, as we become spiritless, as we realize the opportunity to grow ministry, as we realize the opportunity to grow health and wellness in 2021 in a way that's never been present before and particularly for our community, um, the desire to become herbalist and spiritualist and healer and heal her and, and other forms of spiritual and religious practitioners um, is a very noble challenge. And indeed, it's a vocation. Uh, and so we should provide our best, our best 
learn what we can, grow where we can, gain all the experience that we can, absorb the knowledge of our elders while it's available to us, and not just in books, not just in, in digital form, but indeed absorb the knowledge, the word, the energy, the wisdom of our living elders while they are yet among us so that we don't lose connection ever to this information. I'm also greatly concerned about the elimination of what's natural. And particularly in the cities and suburbs, you know, where people are applying herbicides and all sorts of chemicals to eliminate your clovers and your dandelions and your other edible and herbal growth that's coming up, you know, in your otherwise healthy yard. That's one of the reasons it's coming up in your otherwise healthy yard uh, is because the soil in the ground is fertile for the growth of, of food and healing uh, plants. I have a preference for that which is edible and usable. Um, I don't particularly care a lot about what's ornamental. Uh, for indeed, edible and herbal plants can be ornamental, can be extremely ornamental. Uh, there's nothing better than a, a healthy rosemary bush. <laughs> there's nothing, you know, more appealing than, than basil and, and a variety of basils that are available to us that, that offer fragrance and offer ornamentation and draw healthy bees and, and butterflies, you know, to your yard, to your garden, to your produce that help to preserve life uh, on the planet. Such examples of these practices are the usages of salve had for, um, let me go back. Other forms of medicine imply the use of boiled water to dissolve polar organic material into teas for oral consumption. And then I stopped and shared the story about boiling the pine cones, you know, for congestion. And such examples of the practice are the use styles had for burdock root. Burdock root is more famously known as Arcticum lapa, or the plant that inspired George the Mistral of Switzerland to come up with the idea for Velcro in 1941. After observing the way the seeds of the plant hooked onto clothing, the roots of the plant sometimes ingested directly and other times was ground up using tea as a means of administering the drug. Modern science has found that the roots of the plant possess antibacterial or antibiotic and antifungal properties. There is also evidence that burdock root contains compounds that demonstrate anti-inflammatory properties. On top of this, Burdock root is a diuretic and can be used in the treatment of diabetes. Herbalists use the root for the treatment of dropsy, gout, blood purification, rheumatism, and fungal infections. It's also referred to mountain rose herb. This root was crucial in the production of gentle antibiotic salves and pills. The medical knowledge that salve, I'm sorry, the medical knowledge that slaves, they got salves in one sentence and slaves in the other, and 
my dyslexia is like, what's going on? Okay, the medical knowledge that slaves contributed to Western medicine is not just limited to what they learned while in the United States. Some medical procedures that existed in Africa before enslavement were introduced to whites in the U.S. after the enslaved were taken from the continent. The most famous case is the one of native-born West African and then slave Onesimia, O-N-E-S-I-M-U-S, Onesimia. Come on, y'all. Onisima. Tell me what this word. I'm gonna pop it in the uh, in the chat. If somebody wants to join me online, please, I welcome you to join me here on screen. I also invite you to call me at 845-277-9143. Greetings, everyone I haven't acknowledged individually and collectively. Star Bright Child, Craig Burns, Matthew Ferguson, Enzo Khalifa, uh, Sir Naturalista, Light Bearer. Welcome, welcome. Chef Bougie, greetings, beloved. Is Orisha here? Eva, Orisha, welcome, welcome. I did pop that word in if somebody, you know, wants to help me out with the... Uh, Greetings, free to none, with the uh, pronunciations. I'd appreciate that. Yeah, I have five different types of basil in my yard. They have similar characteristics, uh, the way they flower at the top, the way they grow that long, you know, stem at, at the top where the seed pods are, but they're different flavors, different colors. The leaf shapes are, are slightly, slightly different. Yes, chamomile is a common herb, easy to find. Many of you are mowing down or poisoning chamomile in your yard, and you may not even realize it. And then we turn around and go to the herb store or GMC and spend good money. <laughs> to buy what we're poisoning, you know, in, in these lush green yards and pulling up in the urban areas. Yes, greetings, greetings. Thank you for that, uh, Chef Bougie. Sandra C., yes. Yes, burdock, yarrow, plantain, nettle, chamomile, dandelion, wild mint. These are all... Um, commonly found almost all over America, uh, and particularly at abandoned properties, abandoned houses, areas that are least likely to be contaminated with your herbicides and your lawn chemicals and human activity. It's in those areas that you're most likely to, uh, to find these plants growing. Uh, otherwise, where they're being cultivated, you know, in places where they're not being cultivated, are these unmonitored um, areas. Greetings, um, 314. I see you on the phone line. Press the number one if you have a uh, comment, question. Uh, thank you. So how do you pronounce that? One simmer who brought the knowledge of smallpox 
inoculation to the U.S. from Africa. It was one Sama who stated to his master, the well-known theologian from Massachusetts, Cotton Mather, that he had the procedure performed on him in Africa with the knowledge of one Sama gave him just before his death in 1717, Cotton Master was able to curb a smallpox outbreak in Boston in 1721. However, the practice of inoculation in America at the time was still widely criticized. This kind of medical knowledge wouldn't become known in mainstream medicine until Edward Jenner popularized the idea through his innovation of vaccines in 1796. 1796. Now, I also want to stop and take note that this process of inoculation for smallpox came by way of priests of, of, of um, Oba Luoye, Baba Luoye, who we know in Ifa, Yoruba, Voodoo, Rukumi, Santeria, you know, as, as a deity, a, a loa, if you will, of infirmities and disease. And, and you hear me often say here that he is not the creator of, but indeed the, the solution, the antidote, the, the healing force. And it was by way of accessing this particular practice, this particular set of traditions, that uh, our beloved ancestor was able to uh, have his knowledge appropriated, and, and, and we now have the inoculation that we have today against smallpox um, and, and at a greater degree. Uh, let me check my phone line. Very close. Oh, one. Greetings and salutations, beloved. Who's calling? Is that my mom? Hi, son. How are you today? All is a blessing in yourself. This is, I'm doing very well. This is a very interesting show. You brought back a lot of memories. Your great-great-grandmother on your dad's side, I took you home to Mississippi when you were about five months old and you had a bad cold. And she rubbed you with some kind of stinky goo. She said, and, and I said, oh, that stuff smells too bad. She said, I, I, don't, I said, I don't want that on my baby. She said, girl, give me that baby. And she put you on that bed and rubbed you all over with that stuff, but it got rid of that uh, coughing, that, uh, what, all that inflammation you had in your chest. And uh, your grandmother used to cook puff salad off of the, that grew along the back fence of my mother. And also, she, there was a lady in our neighborhood that used to go up by the railroad tracks and pick dandelions and sell the greens every year. And your grandmother used to cook those. And your great-great-grandmother, my grandmother, used to use turpentine for certain ailments. And your paternal grandfather, no, your great-great-paternal grandfather, my grandfather, used to use something called asphysita. It was some kind of stinky stuff. It looked like chewing tobacco, and he'd put the water and stuff in the bottle and shake it up and, and take that ever so often, but it was some stinking stuff. But all of those old whole remedies are good. Now we run to the doctor for everything, and we have most of that stuff growing in our yards. 
Yeah. And I'm going to drop the line and go back to the TV because there's two different things going on here, and I get confused. <laughs> right, right. I understand. Thanks for calling in. All is a blessing. Certainly appreciate the information and and the history and the confirmation. Um, Asta Chefida, I believe, is the name of that herb. It's, it's one of the things I had just talked about. Uh, in, in, in the uh, material that was utilized by the enslaved Africans to perform healing and, and other um, concoctions and potions and notions that aren't readily documented. Um, we know that they had healing properties, but we also know that in the right mixtures and the right doses, these things could also be poisoned. And it furthers the notion that African-based spiritual practices, hoodoo, voodoo, obia, uh, et cetera, would have been forced underground to some degree, just out of the sheer fear surrounding our knowledge and our ability to utilize that knowledge, not just for healing, not just for good, uh, but also for revolution, the biggest fear I believe uh, that they ever had um, for us, around us, with us, was that of revolution, that of, of uprising, that of us just refusing to go along with the system anymore, refusing to, to participate, refusing to be subjugated to. And in many ways, um, that which is distracting my mother on television right now. In many ways, we have to refuse to go along right now. We have to refuse to just accept the status quo. We have to refuse to just accept things as they've always been. And we've got to make really conscious, concerted efforts to change our present, but also our future, and that of America, that environment in which we're all going to have to continue to live and survive in into the next generation. Having some great utopia somewhere, some island to go to somewhere, would be great. But it's just not a reality for us right now, at least not physically, but consciously, spiritually, energetically, emotionally. Uh, we can repatriate, if you will. We can go back to, if you will. We can return to and then rebring this knowledge, this information into our present, and then feed it again into the next generation, into the future. As stated before, the means by which African-American slaves generated this knowledge was through a complicated series of relationships with people of various other races and ethnicities. These were a series of relationships that spanned generations all across the country. It is crucial to remember that for the most part, slaves in the United States could not read or write. In a number of the Library of Congress slave narratives, born in slavery, many former slaves recollect that their former masters were wholly against the idea of having their slaves learn how to read or to write. Many states passed laws that forbade people from teaching slaves how to read or write. 
So information regarding various skills and trades was passed down via word of mouth from generation to generation. All of this was done in order to preserve knowledge that had been so powerfully paid for in blood and sweat. And it reminds me of the memory that some of my grandparents and older people in my family had. Um, and, and some still do that, that are living today, and their ability to remember such fine detail. Um, no idea of, of Asperger, not Asperger, but uh, uh, Alzheimer's, or all, Alzheimer's. Uh, so sometimes we call it old timers, um, and dementia and, and senility. No idea of that. Now, I did have, uh, particularly my dad's family, I can remember uh, Aunt Mary. Uh, who was probably my great aunt, um, having uh, been the first person that I became aware of, of senility. We weren't even calling it, um, um, what do you call it, y'all? We weren't calling it, um, I've called it old-timers so much that I can't remember the correct word, um, that affects uh, our senior citizens. Hold on, let me look up that word. Now, see, if y'all were on the phones with me, uh, I wouldn't have to type all these words in. And, um, Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's. I'm used to hearing old-timers that sometimes I forget it's Alzheimer's. Uh, but that's a new thing in terms of our knowledge of it as a society. I think in terms of knowledge of it, even from the uh, medical perspective. But I think it has a lot to do with how we eat, what we drink, how we live, and the contaminants that we are being exposed to. High up on the list would be plastic. I just don't trust plastic. And if I can avoid buying anything in plastic, particularly water, I do. I think that plastic is leaking more than just what's been, thank you, Frida Nunn, more than just what's been um, revealed to us. If I don't drink bottled water in plastic, I might use it in for libation. I'm public. I might use it, you know, pre-COVID-19 on a movie set. But now today, you know, if I had to go out, I would, I would carry my water, you know, in, in my personal container. I'm, I'm just leery of plastic and many other things that exist now in our environment that could be adding to this rise of mental health-based conditions like um, Asperger's and um, ADHD and and Alzheimer's and dementia and and all these other uh, health and mental health-based conditions that we now see prevalent. And like my mom was just sharing, you know, I I remember my grandmother and great-grandmother's and fathers just having this extraordinary memory. And so the idea that we would memorize and remember these herbs, these plants, these roots, their usage, encode them into songs. Me and Merlene just talked about that this morning, how some of us learn better through songs, through harmony, through rhythm. The classroom, the traditional classroom setting doesn't work for all of us. Some of us 
myself included, um, had to be exposed to the museum, the zoo, uh, nature, wilderness, the countryside, you know, to stimulate aspects of consciousness that just aren't tapped in the classroom. And many of you are concerned today about virtual learning, a whole other degree of, of learning that we now have to learn and adjust to um, by way of video, by way of uh, webcam, by way of Zoom, um, you know, and, of course, distance learning. And I think this is another opportunity to expose ourselves and our children to book learning, but also exploring the world through the technology, even virtually, that is available to us. Um, and, and, and absorbing knowledge that you just would not normally get in your traditional classroom setting. I think in that environment, you know, I remember having seed pods, we grew seed pods in elementary school. I don't know how common that is today. We had some connection to uh, understanding where our food came up, came from, how our food was grown, how, how our meat, you know, was produced. I, I don't know how common that is today um, in, in the educational system. I know we see it in the museum. I know we see it on display, you know, in, in, in workshop environments. Um, so this is an opportunity for us to, again, remember so that we can move forward. Someone asked earlier today about focusing on things uh, of the past. Uh, let me read his, his point, his comment. <clears throat> uh, greeting, Flock Talk Radio, area code 845-277-9143, If you have a question, comment, or request, just press the number one on your telephone keypad. I'll be more than happy to unmute your mic. I posted uh, in Twitter, Facebook, about Harry Jacobs, born in 1813. Harry Jacobs was frequently the victim of brutal sexual assault from her master, James Norcom. Even when Jacobs took on a lover and had two children with him, Norcom's sexual advances continued. Finally, it got to be more than she could bear. And in 1835, she went to hide with friends and family in the attic of their plantation house. And she lived in this cramped attic space, I believe, for seven years uh, before Jacob um, made an escape north and, and, and gained access to her, to her freedom. She hid in a cramped crawl space in her grandmother's attic on the North Carolina plantation. Barely big enough to accommodate her, the space was infested with rats. So nonetheless, she lived there for seven years, and in 1842, she escaped the plantation by boat to Philadelphia. Upon arriving, she was taken in by the members of the Philadelphia Vigilance Committee. She later wrote about her life and trial in the memoir incident in, it's called In the Memoir Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. And it's about, again, Harriet Jacobs. And so most people responded 
respect and love, courageous woman. We love you, mommy. Thank you so much for the history. Measures of survival live within. Um, and my soul looks back in wonder. This is heavy. Our people are beyond measure. And then my beloved brother <laughs> comes and says, when you dwell on things we've been subjugated or subject to as a people, dot, dot, dot. Opinion. He doesn't complete his sentence. He doesn't formulate a, a clear thought so that you understand, you know, what he's really saying. Uh, but for me, it's a story, as it is for many who respond to it, of great survival, miraculous survival, beating all odds no matter what, getting up again and, and, and moving on and growing on and, and gaining access to a better uh, destiny, no matter what things might look like in the present moment. And I think even in today's culture, today's society, it's just too easy to become so negative, so dark, you know, to see so much news, to see so much, you know, media, to hear so much negativity that we don't see the hope, we don't see the opportunities for change, <clears throat> excuse me, that we don't see the opportunities to really make a difference, saying to see <clears throat> that we don't... Um, have an opportunity to protect our environment. So I take great pleasure in exploring the past, in exploring these documents, and gaining access to the knowledge of not just, you know, the negative of our past, but indeed the nuggets of gold that exist within our past. In the case of medical knowledge, Slaves would share their learned knowledge, usually with their immediate family on the plantation. And since it was not common for slaves to venture out into other plantations, much of their gained medical knowledge did not permeate far beyond their home. Anne Whitley Ware of Texas, born in 1857, remembers her mother training her in herbal medicine. Mammy was trained to be a doctor. In them days, they get their medicine from the wood and would make their style, liniment, and such. Mammy learned me what she knew about doctors. However, wandering root doctors or local herbalists were not uncommon in areas of high concentration. A slave. These people were most likely responsible for what kind of information did make it out of the plantation. The root doctors and the local herbalists that had freedom to move about, or liberty, I should say, to move about, either under the guidance or the watchful eye of, of, of the slave owner or master, sometimes they may have been rented out. The service may have been, been rented out. Um, particularly if their particular craft or skill uh, was worthy of, of earning an income. And so not only were we bought and sold, but our skills were bought, sold, rented out, uh, uh, if you will, under the 
again, the watchful eye of, of slave owners. And so successful root doctors and successful local herbalists sometimes were given some liberty to move out into the community and carry that information to other areas, to other plantations, to other communities. African slaves, when coming into the New World, brought with them their various cultural practices and knowledge of medicine. Unfortunately, a majority of what they knew about medicine had to be relearned because most all of their traditional remedies were based on naturally occurring plant resources that were available to them in Africa. So North America was a whole new alien continent with a vastly different ecosystem. This was a similar problem that first challenged many new European settlers coming to the New World as well. For the Europeans, trained physicians were few and far between. In addition to that, supply ships from Europe that carried medical supplies for the settlers, especially during the winter months, were very, very rare. Early settlers turned towards Native Americans for help with treating illness and for trading medicinal herbs. Native Americans contributed a great amount to the American pharmacopoeia. And the knowledge that they first shared with the early European immigrants was still being used by physicians up throughout the 19th century. It was this mix of European and Native American medicine that many Africans first studied. The acquired knowledge from these new medical practices mixed with their own pre-established ones. Many Native Americans even shared their knowledge directly with the enslaved Africans. Both African and Native American medicines were heavily steeped in the idea that magic played an important role in the healing process. In many African cultures, someone was a skilled healer who also was equally skilled in spirit. As Hebert C. Kobe, you might say Herbert, we say Hebert in, in Louisiana, uh, Herbert C. Covey says, the spiritual aspects of healing and curing, as well as the role of the family, spiritual possession, witchcraft, sorcery, herbs and plants, and beliefs played an important role in traditional West African healing arts. African-American slaves learned the medicinal knowledge of whites by direct osmosis. Marie Jenkins Swartz explains this process. Slaves were familiar with the therapies of the physician. Knowledge of regular medicine among slaves stemmed from their involvement as patients, nurses, midwives, and servants. Even though slaves had learned a considerable amount of their medical knowledge to whites, such as how to diagnose ailments based on symptoms, how to conduct bedside manner, and general preventative care for ailments, there was still a stigma against slaves practicing medicine. 
Many whites did not trust slaves practicing medicine on the plantation or on them. White people of the time saw the spiritual side of African-American medicine as something wholly uncivilized. They looked at people who practiced voodoo, root work, conja, and other forms of spiritual healing as quacks. Many plantation owners forbade their slaves from treating themselves or other slaves with herbal remedies. They feared that enslaved people waited too long before applying treatment, were incompetent, ignorant, lazy, and were intolerant when ailments got out of hand. There was also the fear that slaves would poison their masters as revenge for mistreatment. Many plantation owners would beat slaves if they were caught practicing medicine. Some white people, however, saw benefits in allowing slaves to practice medicine and even had family members saved by the quick action of their slaves where modern medicine had failed. There was such a rise in the number of African-American herbalists and medical practitioners that the South Carolina General Assembly passed a law in 1749 that prohibited slaves from being employed by physicians to concoct poison or administer medicine of any kind. However, slave medicine continued. Many slaves saw medicine as one of their few freedoms left the freedom to treat their own body. Some plantation owners would allow it some place, some plantation owners would allow it if a physician's aid failed to cure someone. Still other owners had a complete distrust of modern medical physicians altogether. So they opted for their own home remedies. The conditions for what was allowed for a plantation varied from owner to owner. It was usually a slave owner's personal experience with either slave practice medicine or modern medicine that gave him uh, that, that gave him opinion on the matter. Some slave owners saw slaves caring for each other's health as an opportunity for slaves to fake illness to get out of doing work. They slave owners developed the attitude that if a slave complained of illness, he was acting like a true Negro and weighed poorly to escape work. However, it was often in the best interest of the slave owner to allow his slaves to care for themselves. Slave owners did not have to pay for or wait for physicians to come and treat their slaves. Other times, Having a slave treat another slave eased the mind of the patient, and it led to a better morale among slaves on the plantation. And it's interesting how many of these conditions, how many of these concerns, how many of the things that they were paranoid about, maybe rightfully so, concerned about, maybe rightfully so, still exist today, and not just exist today, are reinforced today by, by many of the things such as what's going on right now at, at, the, at the WH that, that we see in the media that we see in the news. And so add that on top of Tuskegee, add that on top of, of slave 
history uh, with medicine and with doctors and, and with the pharmacological processes of the system. Uh, and so we still have sort of that, that dynamic still exists today. Those who won't go to the hospital, won't go to the doctor to save their life, but might take herbs, might consider, you know, might consider potions and, and concoctions that I might offer them. What made slave practice medicine so important during the 19th century was the state of medical care that existed in the South. Medicine in the South was becoming more and more westernized. Westernized medicine was, during the mid-19th century, a popular emerging field that relied on the heavy usage of powerful drugs and the use of modern surgery to cure both physical and psychological ailments. Formerly trained medical practitioners were attempting to move away from the European system of homeopathic cures that had become so popular in the United States after its conception by Samuel by Samuel Hahnemann in 1796. Let me put that in the uh, let me put that in the chat. Homeopathy was similar to the doctrine of signature, a much older form of medicine in the sense that it based itself on the idea that like cure like. So, for instance, if you had, you know, inflammation, then they might give you pepper, Tabasco, hot herbs, hot plants, uh, in in order to sort of counterbalance uh, that condition. And homeopathy is still popular, by the way, even in 2020, particularly out west and and, and in California. This is not to say that medical practitioners have diverged completely from homeopathic or traditional herbal remedies. Dr. Ewell, a well-known 19th century physician, revealed that the contents of his medical chest contained substances like Peruvian bark, gum arabic, essence of peppermint, a tincture of foxglove, arrowroot. However, most of the new advancements in modern medicine resulted in harsh remedies that were typically some form of laxative and anagolistic opium derivative, a purging compound, or anti-rheumatoid in nature. Formerly trained physicians began using these forms of medicine heavily when treating the symptoms of both African-American slaves and whites alike. Bleeding or cuffing, purging, puking, and blistering became standard for most formally trained medical practitioners. Cuffing, for some reason, has has made a revival um, in 2020, and and I'm still trying to figure that one out. These treatments were so frequently used and prevalent in the southern United States that most issues of 
Antebellum Southern Medical Journal contained articles written by doctors who routinely purged, puked, and bled their black patients, often to unconsciousness. These practices quite often created a distrust of modern medicine among slaves, who were forcibly subjected to its treatment by the slave owners and whites, who still clung to valued homeopathic home remedies that were usually passed down to families. And these new medicines were expensive, were expensive and required a higher skill to administer. Plus, formerly trained physicians and medical practitioners were common only in highly populated areas of the South. In 1847, a physician by the name of Carter P. Johnson published a report in the Transactions of the American Medical Association on the number of regular and non-diploma holding practitioners of 75 Virginia counties and towns. Around one-third of these doctors, 294 of 972 had never received diploma. Another 30 adhered to the Thompsonian system. So many white and white slave owners distrusted doctors that many called upon irregular medical practitioners such as Thompsonianism, homeopath, hydropath, empirics, and eclectic. Let me pop that in the chat. So that's a bit of a, uh, a tongue twister there. Thompsonian, Thompsonianism, Thompsonianism, homeopath. <laughs> I mean, that's a tongue twister for me. That's a tongue twister, y'all. But forgive me. That's why I popped it in the chat. So this Thompson. Thompsonianism, Thompsonianism was a branch of medical treatment that came from homeopathic ideology. It was invented by Samuel Thompson, a self-taught herbalist and botanist from Alstead, New Hampshire, during the late 18th century. The practices used in treatment were centered on the idea of using heat, to heal the body. Hydropaths were people who quite obviously used water exposure as a form of medical treatment. These alternative forms of treatment were less expensive and often were available to people who lived far from the city. Oftentimes, plantation owners would permit an overseer to administer versions of their home remedies or therapies on the place. Other times, plantation owners would resort to modern practices of bleeding and purging, much like their stances on slave practice medicine. Slave owners' uses of medical treatment stemmed from what they had success with in the past. 
Soviet explained this when he says medical practice, especially in rural areas, was a matter of trial and error rather than of application of a set of procedures learned in medical school. And let's remember, we were shadowed to them. We were no higher than the goats and the sheep and the cow. In fact, you know, they may have valued the goat and the sheep a little bit more uh, with the veterinarian as opposed to how, you know, they sort of dealt with us. Um, and we see some of that, you know, on, on your cow your cow farm, your horse farm, you know, people who might think they can correct the problem as opposed to getting a professional sort of come in and, and address what might be going on. And slaves were an important investment to plantation owners, yet the overall treatment of slaves' health was abysmal. Their health became important only when a slave became sick or injured. When in need of medical care, slaves entered a strange power dynamic. Their master decided when they did or did not need medical care. They also determined what kind of medical treatment they should receive, such as bleeding, purging, powerful opioids, or harsh home remedies. When treated, slaves assumed the role of a patient in need of care, yet had no rights over the treatment they received as patients. Slaves would sometimes fake illness to avoid work, but this action came at a cost. The slaves were found to be lying, they were severely beaten. If their owners did believe that they were indeed ill, they were often forced to take powerful medicines that in turn nearly killed them. Slave medicine was empirical in its approach, meaning that it was mostly a system of health care built over time by observations and experience. However, even though slave medicine did follow an empirical style, slaves were more attuned with what kind of natural remedies worked and in which ways. Like other natural remedies, however, there was an element of superstition that at times outweighed practical means. One major difference between African-American slave medicine and white medicine was the basis for slave practice medicine was not steeped in the idea that such race was biologically different. This distinction between races may have existed in their outlook on spiritual healing, but not in their decisions when administering herbal medicine. Much of what made modern medicine so brutal towards African Americans was that it was based many times on race. It was based many of its treatments on the idea that Negroes were biologically inferior to whites, whereas slave medicine was medicine. And so they didn't care if it was master or slave. The application, the application of spirit would, would have been the same. But in modern medicine, race, played a role and, and continue to this day to play a role as we see it in, in the COVID-19 numbers. 
prevalence of COVID in, in, in the black and brown uh, community. This idea was argued after physicians in the southern United States observed that many Native Africans possess an inherent immunity to malaria. Many Native Africans um, possess an inherent immunity to malaria as well as an increased vulnerability to pulmonary diseases such as tuberculosis or whooping cough. From this and other various differences in health, it was accepted by both Southern and Northern medical communities that Africans were biologically inferior to whites and their race was designed for hard labor. Savit or Salvit explains that medical theory and practice was still in such a state of flux in the late 18th and early 19th centuries that there was little risk of any true scientific challenge to medical system based on racial differences. Slave folk practitioners existed primarily as midwives, grannies, herb doctors, root doctors, spiritual healers, kitchen, kitchen, physics, conjure doctors, and to a lesser degree, formally trained physicians. However, those who became formally trained physicians were also freed African-Americans. It was also in some ways similar to Eurocentric medicine at that time, considering that it was heretic in many ways. Heretic medicine or heretic medicine was a traditional form of medicine that encouraged the use of treatments that were physical or immediately observable. This, of course, often jeopardized many patients' health. Let me pop that in the chat. Appreciate you all for being here with me, and particularly on this topic. Uh, I, I hope you are hearing and understanding the uh, interconnectedness between slave medicine, herbal practices, American ideas about uh, race and medicine, and, and how that is still absolutely relevant to today. Heroic medicine. My pronunciation might not always be on point. And so that's why I, I periodically stop and, and pop it into the chat so that you all can uh, get the spelling and, and clarify the pronunciation sometimes of, of these words uh, for yourself. There were African-Americans, both enslaved and free, who subscribed to modern medicine during the antebellum period. However, when slaves practiced medical treatments such as voiding, bleeding, cupping, etc., it was usually at the command of the master. Most slaves, because of their tradition and aversion to these harsh treatments, sought medical care through herbal treatments as well as spiritual healing or guidance. Slaves' ability to treat people with herbal remedies were wholly supported 
by their knowledge of the environment. Those who were experienced and treated people were also knowledgeable about what was available to them in the surrounding environment. For the most part, healthcare on a plantation was most often a woman's endeavor. Grannies or older African-American women were usually the most experienced in the realm of medicine. African-American women were also called upon as midwives, wet nurses, bedside nurses, and cooks. This gave them valuable exposure to medical knowledge. Most were often too old to work on the plantation. They took on the primary role of caregiver for for infants, children, and the elderly. The time away from working gave them time to forage for roots and other medical biological materials. I also think it's important to note the power that the grannies and the nannies and, and, and the aunts and mamas and the mammies would have had. The kitchen would have been their space, for sure. Oh, it's in Master's house and, and Master pay for the stove and et cetera. But it indeed would have been their kitchen. It indeed would have been their space. Indeed, they would have known the order of, of, of the spices in the cabinet, what was available in the pantry and where it was not just how to use it. And so there's a, a great deal of power that still exists uh, among our, our black women and our black mothers and grandmothers today within the community. Um, the idea that we are, are less aware or we don't acknowledge or, or show respect anymore um, is a product of westernization. It is a product of an extension and a symptom of westernization. And our exposure and conditioning in, in the present world culture, our lack of sympathy and empathy and connection to our, our youngest, our, our infants and our children, but also to our elderly. The conditions that surrounded slave practice medicine were not only varied, but complex in nature. There are still much left unsaid about the capabilities of slave practice medicine. Equally so, there is much less unsaid about its shortcomings and limitations. Like most medicine in the antebellum South, it was an imperfect art. Neither whites nor blacks could take credit for being completely superior to one another in medical knowledge. However, when we stop to look at the circumstances of each part, we see that the world during this time was not equally optimistic for African Americans. For a group of people to be denied basic human rights, to be denied the access to education, and still be affected in the area of medical treatment as those who were given the rights is simply remarkable. The state of modern medicine in the southern United States was not ideal. African-American medicine provided beneficial contributions to the field of medicine that had not yet been conceived. Most part, however, like with most aspects of African-American life that had to do with education, African-American slave medicine was suppressed. 
It was suppressed until it became beneficial for plantation owners to use. After Fativa, that my mom called in and mentioned, burdock root, smallpox, and inoculation were just a few of the many medical advancements made by African-American enslaved. There are still others that were more effective and advanced for their time. And for the most part, modern science combined with narratives of the past have been able to weed out which ones were ineffective in their usage. Much of this information not only signifies the importance of African-American contribution to the American pharmacopoeia, but it also signifies the importance of African-Americans' role in the advancement of westernized medicine. And I'm going to share uh, in the chat the uh, documents in the book for my more advanced students that were drawn from so that you can do your own further um, your own further investigation if you will I think it's also important to note the shadow of hoodoo root work conjure always has and still sort of haunts the modern medical footprint and demonstration even till this day. And again, as I said before, um, many of the fears of industrial medicine, commercialized medicine, the organized medical system as, as we know it still exists till this day. Still hard to get some of you to go to a doctor till this day. Still hard to get some of you to go to a dentist. Even today, it's still hard to get some of you to trust, you know, medication, you know, whether it be mental health, whether it be other, you know, physical ailments, even till this day. And so that shadow work just behind modern medicine, just behind modern concepts of wellness, health, wellness, and well-being still sort of hard to go up. Even even today, and so we we see vegan, vegetarianism, uh, herbal usage, and, and herbal usage at a, a heightened rate, particularly uh, today, um, that we didn't see necessarily in, in the seventies. Um, now I remember in the seventies and the sixties we had gardens. Grandma had a garden. Great grandmama had a garden. Almost everyone had a garden, neighbors had a garden, you know, front yard, back yard, wherever they had a space, you know, they had a garden. And it kind of fell out of popularity or fell out of usage um, in the 80s, in the 1980s, in the materialistic 1980s, where we gained much more interest in material things, things with a label, uh, keeping up with the Joneses, uh, you, you know, that, that sort of thing. So now we're seeing a revival of gardening, we're seeing a revival of baking bread uh, at home, of cooking, uh, you know, we're seeing a revival um, of, of hunting and, and fishing and, and people learning and relearning to source 
food for themselves, whether it be for entertainment, for exercise, for sports. But I think many of us are now finding it to be a, a more important component to, to our identity, our lineage, and our heritage, and who we are as a people, who we are as individuals. Listen, this has been a great show. I invite your participation. I'm going to give it about maybe 20 more minutes. If you have a question, comment, or request, you can call me on my phone line to area code 845-277-9143. You are also welcome to follow the link, the StreamYard link, and join us here um, live on screen with your question, comment, request, memory, experience, um, as it relates to the show's topic. Voodoo is nature. Ifa, Akan, Santeria, Lokomi, it's based and built upon nature. There are no indigenous world traditions that don't involve plant life, herb life, water, what's hot in nature, what's cooling in nature, what's soothes and calms in nature. And it was not lost or stripped from us, even by way of the middle passage. You all are awfully quiet out there. Is this some kind of technical issue happening with the show? I'm going to take a quick intermission, and I will be forward momentarily. All is a blessing.
party, you know, as, you know, Bernie Sanders, you know, if Bernie Sanders had a chance, I would vote for Bernie Sanders. If Elizabeth Warren had a chance, I would vote for Elizabeth Warren. I, I, I would have voted for Hillary Clinton. But, you know, but that's your right. That's your prerogative. It's not a judgment, beloved. Melody, I, I'm just saying, a vote for the third party in this particular instance is a wasted vote. I'm an independent. I would much rather vote for an independent candidate. I would much rather vote for a green candidate. I would much rather vote for an independent candidate. But in an option of more Trump or no Trump, we don't have no option. We don't have any option. You haven't heard me say a whole whole lot about Biden-Harris. I'm going to vote Biden-Harris, but you ain't heard me say a whole lot about Biden-Harris. I'm not jumping up and down and doing cartwheels over Biden-Harris ticket. I am jumping up and down to prevent more of Trump. I absolutely can't do more of Trump. It will change our culture irrevocably. It will change our future irrevocably. So I get it. I understand feeling like, you know, what do you say, the worst of two evils? I, I get it. I do. But I'm, I'm not going to risk my vote in the face of, of Trump. That's just not going to work. I understand life there. Um, I, I get it. I'm not even quite sure where you live. Um, I I would like to offer that if you are indeed African-American living, breathing, residing in America, it matters. (laughs) Um, It doesn't require or or demand to be so political, but it matters. It it matters. Um, So I appreciate you all. I'm going to stop now and move forward. I have appointments to cover for today. I'm going to have me some lunch. I look forward to being back here with you again at high noon U.S. Central Standard Time for another powerful edition of Revolutionary Voodoo, New Orleans Voodoo Secrets and Recipes. All is truly and indeed a blessing. If you can just be beyond the veil, I say. Thank you, Blog Talk Radio. It's been a great coming together. Congo Square. The Omus Indians, the Omus Indians prepared this place for us centuries before our arrival. A sacred spot where corn festivals were celebrated. The Omus Indians prepared this place for us centuries before our arrival. Congo Square, a sacred spot where corn festivals were celebrated. And as the colonizers came, our host, the Omus Indians, they pushed aside our host. The colonizers came and 
pushed aside our host and introduced us in chains. And by the late 1700s, we somehow, recognizing the sacredness of Le Place de Congo, we somehow, and the how of our somehow persuasive methodologies is not clear at this moment. The how is not clear. How our persuasive methodologies worked is not clear at this moment, but nevertheless, even as slaves, we crafted and created a space where we could be free to be we. And thusly, thusly we countered the sacrilegiousness of the French, giving great homage to our ancestors as well as giving praise and thanks to our red-blooded brothers and sisters. This is an oral libation toast to Congo Square, to Native Americans, to our ancestors who made a circle out of a square and gave us a way to stay ourselves, save ourselves from the transformatory ugliness of America, which refuses to recognize the spirituality of life which refuses to recognize the spirituality of life and celebrates death with crosses and crosses, double and triple crosses, the middle passage, the first cross, Christianity, the double cross, and capitalism, the ultimate triple coup de grace cross of our captivity. But the terror of crosses notwithstanding, we sang, we beat, we be, we was and is. Hail Congo Square. Congo, Congo Square. Our African gods have not been obliterated. They have merely retreated inside the beat of us. Inside the beat of us, our African gods have not been obliterated. They have merely retreated, retreated inside the beat of us until we are ready to release them into a world that we recreate, a world harrowed by the beat, be, beat, being, beating, being of black heart drums, heart beat, heart beat. Heart be at this place, at this place be heart be be we beating place in new world space, beating being in place in new world, preserving our ancient pace. Our dance is the God walk, our music the God talk. First thing we do. Let's get together, circle ourselves into community. No beginning, no end, connected together. And singing, ringing, singing in a ring. Second, let's be original, aboriginal. Be what we were before we became what we are. Be Bambula dance. 
be Banza music and sing song words which have no English translation. Third, let us remember. Let us remember never to forget. Even when we can't remember the specifics, we must retain the essentials. Let us remember never to forget. Even when we can't remember the specifics, we must retain the essentials. The bounce, the blood, flow, the feel, the spirit, grow, energy, must retain and pass on the essential us-ness that others want to dissipate, whip out of us. But no matter, no matter how much of us they prohibit, no matter how much of us they prohibit, Deep inside us is us. Deep inside us is us. Remains us inside and needs only the beat to set us free. The beat to free us. It is morning. A sun day. A feel. A feel. Without shade, but dark. Dark with the people black of us in various, various, various shades. Eclipsing the sun with our elegance. We are centuries later now, and still this sacred ground calls us. To remember, to beat, to be. We are centuries later now. And still, this sacred ground calls us. To remember, to beat, to be. Beat Congo Square. Be Congo Square. Beat Be. Beat Be. Remember. 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 